Welcome to the 10th podcast in the UNSW Canberra series, Navigating Uncertainty. Today's topic is multiculturalism without minority rights. Today's podcast is sponsored by the International Ethics Research Group based at UNSW Canberra. This podcast has been recorded on the lands of Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the Canberra region. We acknowledge their elders, past and present, and sovereignty has never been ceded. I'm Dr. Umut Özgüç, a visiting fellow in International Ethics Research Group, and it's my pleasure today to host today's conversation. Our guest today is Dr. Peter Balland, the convener of the International Ethics Group here at UNSW Canberra. Balland is a senior lecturer in political science in School of Humanities and Social Sciences. His research is primarily focused on the principles of diversity, including respect, toleration, neutrality, and social cohesion. His most recent book is Respecting Toleration, Traditional Liberalism and Contemporary Diversity, published by Oxford University Press. His book was awarded Absecris Prize in 2018. This highly acclaimed book has been discussed around the globe, including US and Canada. And today we discuss Balance forthcoming book, published by Oxford University Press. The title of his book, Debating Multiculturalism, which is co-authored with Dr. Patty Leonard from University of Ottawa. In this book, we see an interesting dialogue between Leonard and Ballant, which makes the book quite unique. Two, book, two authors take opposing sides in the debate over multiculturalism and minority rights. Whereas Leonard is in favor of minority rights, Ballant is against it. Ballant defends a modified version of liberal neutrality as the best ways of accommodating minority ways of life. This book is very timely and it addresses some of the most controversial issues of our times, multiculturalism. Multiculturalism, as we know, has become a political touchstone in many countries around the world. We see debates over headscarves and burqas, including their banning in parts of Europe. We see referenda on minarets in Switzerland, debates over mosques in Italy and Denmark. Here in Australia, we've seen discussions about the supply of halal meat. In Sweden, issues about not shaking hands with opposite sex is one of the hot debates on multiculturalism. In the UK, there are questions about government funding for religious schools. We also see Buddhists wanting vegetarian food options. Many sheikhs want to wear turbans, not helmets, and to carry ceremonial knives into public spaces. The Amish want exemptions from minimal age to leave school and the Quakers asks for an exemption from compulsory military service. There are also questions about the language provisions offered to minorities or migrants who speak other languages. The question is whether there should be publicly funded interpreters in courts and hospitals. Should schooling be permitted in minority languages? Should city infrastructure, including street signs, be translated into minority languages? If so, which languages. In short, the list of debates on multiculturalism and minority rights is quite long. Multiculturalism certainly brings issues around the accommodation of minority ways of life. And when we look at the debates over multiculturalism closely enough, we see two diverse views, two opposing views. Those in favor of multiculturalism support these minority claims and are willing to grant minorities special rights in order to meet such claims. From this perspective, multiculturalism is essential for the full inclusion of immigrants and other minorities, 
and to protect their ways of life in diverse societies. However, on the opposite spectrum of the political discourse, we see a different understanding of multiculturalism. Those opposed to multiculturalism do not see a need to treat minorities any differently to anyone else. For those who oppose multiculturalism argue that multiculturalism is charged with generating segregation rather than inclusion. It undermines national cultures, reinforces differences and privileges minority groups. While many of those on the right spectrum of politics oppose multiculturalism, many of those on the left embraced it. But Dr. Bellin's work shows that things are not quite this simple that e- that can easily be understood through this duality. Bellin argues that another way is possible, and that third way is multiculturalism without minority rights. And this is the central premise of Bellin's work and the topic of our podcast today. Peter, welcome to UNSW Canberra Navigating Uncertainty series. It's my great pleasure to host you today. So my first question is, what exactly is your position on the debates over multiculturalism and minority rights? Thanks, Umut. Aside with the multiculturalisms, that the multiculturalists, that minority claims matter. But I also side with the anti-multiculturalists that the minorities should not have special rights. So I take seriously the claims of those who want to do things that our institutions make difficult to achieve. Some of the examples you gave earlier. There's something wrong, I think, when minorities have some type of relative disadvantage that makes their ways of life harder to practice than those of the majority. But instead of arguing for minority rights to counter this relative disadvantage, I argue that their relative disadvantage is removed when institutions reduce the privileging that's given to these majorities. So to put it simply, if the issue is relative disadvantage so that minorities have a relative disadvantage, then we should remove the advantage given to the majorities. In other words, I argue for neutral institutions Neutral institutions which provide no significant advantage to either majority or minority. Peter, can you tell us more about what you mean by neutral institutions? At core of the idea of neutral institutions is the idea that to be treated neutrally is to be shown no relative favour nor no relative disfavour. So neutral institutions are going to favour no particular ways of life. They're not going to favour the ways of life of the majority, nor are they going to favour the ways of life of the minority, relative to each other. There are two ways in which institutions must be neutral. First is the sense in which they're justified. So what we're talking about here is the way that when we say these are the reasons for this institution, these reasons should be neutral. A clear example of a failure to be neutral here would be a theocracy. So a theocracy like the one in Iran, for example, its institutions are justified by the rightness of a particular understanding of Islam. They're clearly not neutral. It clearly favours a particular way of life. This is an easy example of how institutions aren't neutral, but often in their justifications. But often this neutrality is more subtle. So there are plenty of cases where assumptions about what is a good life justifies our institutions. So a policy on 
a particular type of uniform that's worn might, for example, be about looking smart. But smart here is often tied to a dominant aesthetic, and which, is, which is the majority way of looking at the world. So this is where many minority rights activists have spent energy, because many of our important institutions have the rightness of the majority way of life built into their practices in a way that's often unreflected upon. And this bias needs correcting and a properly neutral justification put in its place. Sometimes, though, minority accommodation is impeded by what seems like a neutral justification. We can look here at France's 2010 Burqa ban, a law that, and I quote, no one in the public area may wear an outfit designed to conceal his or her face. And this was entirely phrased in neutral language. And it, avoid, it avoided discussing either religion or the superiority of any particular way of life. Similarly, the 2013 law that was proposed in Quebec, Quebec to prohibit public sector employees from wearing conspicuous religious symbols um, was given an entirely neutral justification that it would foster public confidence in these employees and show the state and its agents as being neutral. Although it, like the burqa ban, was targeted at Muslim headscarves, um, and in this case at Sikh turbans, and in the Quebec case it allowed smaller Christian crosses. These were not seen as conspicuous religious symbols. So the political climate surrounding these decisions tells us how the justifications weren't neutral. The examples also show us that we need institutions with more than neutral justifications if minorities are to be accommodated. And this leads to the second sense of neutrality that matters when we're understanding neutral institutions. And this is that institutions should not intend to favour any particular way of life. In the French Perga ban and the Quebecois attempt to ban conspicuous religious symbols, these laws intended to make Muslim ways of life more difficult. It's quite clear here there was non-neutral intent. So while both jurisdictions were careful in how they phrased and defended their new laws using what seemed to be neutral justifications, they clearly demonstrate non-neutral intent. Now you might wonder, okay, these are institutions. How can institutions intend anything? How can in, so how can institutions intend to be neutral? Well, in some cases, it's going to be very easy to gauge intent. Classic case here would be the apartheid system in the former South Africa. This clearly did not have neutral intent. Whites were clearly intended to be favoured over other races. But in other cases, intent might seem much harder. Does a strict school uniform policy, perhaps one with very particular headwear requirements, only these sorts of hats can be worn and not these, really intend to favour students from majority backgrounds? Or is this just an unintended outcome? It may be really hard to tell. So because of the difficulty of knowing the real intent of an institution, I want to suggest a particular way of understanding intent. On this understanding, an institution is not neutral in intent when it both knowingly and avoidably favours one way of life over others. So let me repeat. An institution is not neutral in its intent when it both knowingly and avoidably 
favours one way of life over others. So once activists or policy specialists have indicated that an institution favours particular ways of life, and this has been stated repeatedly, then an institution is knowingly non-neutral. It now knows it's not neutral. The institution, perhaps in this case an education system, and its founders may not have originally intended to favour a majority way of life. Um, But once they know about this relative favouring, they are non-neutral. This next issue then is avoidability. What matters is whether there are alternative options. Just because something has always been done a particular way does not mean it must continue. Neutrality can be achieved by changing our practices. And if practices can change, then non-neutrality is avoidable. Let me give some examples from multiculturalism and the literature here. So police forces in Western liberal democracies can still protect the people, even though their members now wear turbans or other alternative head coverings. And these are things that would have been unthinkable just a short time ago. Likewise, children can still be educated in a common curriculum, even when that happens in a religious setting or predominantly in another language. Clearly, there are different ways of doing things that still meet the neutral justification and purpose of the institution. So institutions can change to be more accommodating. Of course, institutions, like most of us, are often reluctant to change. But as these and countless more examples show, change is possible, and so they can avoid being non-neutral. So let me summarise this point about neutral institutions. Neutral institutions show no favour or disfavour to either majorities or minorities. They should neither be justified by the rightness of the majority way of life, nor intend to favour that way of life. These neutral institutions will be able to accommodate, then, minority ways of life. That's a very convincing argument, Peter. But then the question is, isn't neutrality always going to hinder minority accommodation? Look, this is a sort of claim that there's no such thing as neutrality, which is a common uh, phrase thrown around, and that, that neutrality somehow favours the status quo. And it's a charge that's often thrown at neutrality. This is the idea that it's false, and it, as I said, it just favours the status quo. But as I hope to have shown already, and I can say a bit more about, neutrality is a radical idea. In fact, it's neutrality itself that attacks the status quo and best serves the minorities. So perhaps it's true in the past people have hidden behind neutrality, uh, but when, we, when neutrality is properly operationalised, it's a radical idea that undermines the status quo and undermines the privileging of majorities. Part of the issue here is a misunderstanding of neutrality. A state or a judge or an umpire is always only neutral between a specific range of things. They're not going to be neutral about absolutely everything. So states, for example, will not be neutral about justice. They're only going to be neutral among justice-respecting ways of life. So as long as your way of life is consistent with whatever view of justice is there, the state should be neutral towards it. They're not going to be neutral towards ways of life which are not respecting justice. So if you want to be a homicidal, axe-wielding murderer, the state should certainly not be neutral towards that way of life. Likewise, judges will not be neutral about the law. 
um, they're only going to be neutral between the parties before them. And umpires in a sporting contest will not be neutral about the rules of the game. They should only be neutral between the competing teams. It's also true here that neutrality will often not be realised. But in this way, it's no different to our other political ideals. All our ideals are like this. They tell us where to aim and they guide our actions. But because they must be balanced with other things we take as important, or because the real world is not our ideal world, we never perfectly achieve our ideals. Take the example of democracy. No actual democracy is perfectly democratic, according to any of the ideal conceptions. But that doesn't mean our ideal conceptions are wrong or even flawed. This just means that our conceptions of democracy are ideals. Neutrality will be no different here. Finally, we get to the argument of the early multiculturalist theorists. And this is that many of our real institutions are not neutral, and many of our real institutions clearly favour the majority. But in fact, multicultural minority rights are a form of neutrality. By encouraging an institution to add these rights, as the multicultural theorists have done, these are intended to neutralise the privilege given to the majority. So our multicultural minority rights have been put up as an antidote to liberal neutrality. They are in fact a form of liberal neutrality. They are neutral because they, they try to counter the privileging that has been given to majorities in the institutions that we actually have. So in the book you argue for active indifference as the right form of neutrality. What is this idea of active indifference? Can you please elaborate it more? Thanks, Umut. This idea of active indifference is the main idea of multiculturalism without minority rights. When an institution knowingly and avoidably favours a majority, consequently disfavours minorities, there is a strong case for some type of neutralising change, some action to take place. At this point, we have a choice. We can either add minority rights and therefore privilege the, the minority and, and equal, so they can be equally privileged like the majority, or we can remove the majority privilege altogether. Under active indifference, I argue we should remove the majority privilege and broaden our institutions to allow greater minority accommodation. We do this, I think we should do this, rather than simply add minority privilege as our neutralising change. So for example, when groups such as Sikhs, Orthodox Sikhs or Muslims wanted to join our police forces in what have been our traditionally Christian-dominated jurisdictions, they found the uniform requirements a barrier to entry. What usually occurred here, sometimes after an unnecessary delay, is that provisions were made specifically to allow Sikhs or Muslims to wear turbans or headscarves in the colour of the uniform or to have facial hair. This required recognition of their particular identities as well as minority rights. This recognition was often granted to other religious groups too, so that they too could wear uniforms that suited their particular cultural or religious backgrounds. These, this recognition required some measure of authenticity. You have to be recognised to be from a particular group 
in order to access this exemption from the usual police uniform requirements. And only once this authenticity has been accepted was an individual able to access a minority right in the form of an exemption. So this recognition and exemption approach, that of the minority rights advocates, of the multicultural minority rights advocates, I should say, does grant more minority accommodation than doing nothing. But it's neither the best nor the only way that we should proceed. It's a form of neutrality, that's true, but so too is removing and changing barriers altogether. A neutralising alternative to, minor, to multicultural minority rights here is to do away with exemptions altogether. And this is active indifference. If a police form force can still function, with some members wearing turbans, some wearing headscarves, some beards, then this seems to show that the general rule in place is unnecessarily restrictive. There is no need for an exemption from an unnecessarily restrictive rule. Much better is to modify the rule altogether. So why not just say turbans, headscarves and beards are now permitted without the need for recognition? There would then be no need for multicultural minority rights, recognition of identity, nor measures of authenticity. All that is required is an understanding that existing arrangements are non-neutral and for a new set of more neutral arrangements to be put in place that expand the possibilities for diversity. In this case, to simply allow turbans, headscarves and beards. Once these possibilities are expanded, then no exemptions or recognition is required. In this case, there is simply a new, broader set of uniform requirements. Now, examples of active indifference are really easy to generate, partly because they actually are how the, the world operates. Another example here is the running of elections. Several countries around the world have their polling days on Saturdays, New Zealand, Australia, Malta and Latvia among them. But, as many listeners may be aware, Saturdays are a strictly observed Sabbath for Orthodox Jews. This looks like a barrier for Orthodox Jews discharging their civic duty in these countries, and on the face of it suggests the institution in this form is not neutral. Given this barrier, it would seem we would need to do something for Orthodox Jews in order to make the institution more neutral. Now, we have two options to, for neutralising change here. First, the multicultural minority rights approach, which would involve recognition of, of Orthodox Jews and recommend granting them exemption. Perhaps they'd be offered the opportunity to vote on another day altogether or to post a vote. This would be neutralising, of course, in their case. The second possibility would be active indifference the view that I favour. If it's possible to have voting on more than one day or to post a vote, then this suggests the institution can serve its purpose, collecting the voting intentions of citizens without making everybody turn up on the same day. This approach may keep the Saturday polling day, but open up pre-poll and postal voting to all of us. In fact, active indifference is standard practice in most of these countries. They have pre-poll and postal voting without the need for recognition of minority rights. There is no need to recognise Orthodox Jews as a particular group in order to accommodate them. This is active indifference. It's the idea that an institution should be indifferent between the range of lives of those that are subject to it. 
But this indifference cannot be set and forget. It requires the institution to actively respond to unjustified failures of neutrality and to broaden its range of indifference. As a final question, I also want to ask, if both multicultural minority rights and what you called active indifference are neutral, then the question is, why should we prefer active indifference over minority rights? Put simply, active indifference avoids the problems of multicultural minority rights and has its own advantages. Within the literature on multicultural minority rights, there is broad agreement and acknowledgement that granting special rights to minorities comes with some important and serious problems. For example, it's often difficult to determine who exactly is a group member, who is actually in the, in the, in the group. Um, remember, when we give minority rights, we need to know who precisely they should be given to. And this is a problem, especially when there are internal politics going on within a particular group. Recognising a group as worthy of rights will also likely fix the identity of that group. And it's going to make change within that group much harder. Think here, for example, of progressive members of conservative religions and the way that they, many of them get ostracised by their own groups. Finally, recognition of a particular group can lead to minorities within that minority being vulnerable. Think here again about conservative groups and their views and treatment of women. By granting rights to particular groups, you give power to those particular groups, and those within the group who are vulnerable can be made and left more vulnerable. These are not my arguments against minority rights, though I should stress. These are the arguments against minority rights that are agreed upon by those who argue for them as well. But significantly, active indifference actually has more positive advantages as well as avoiding these known problems of multicultural minority rights. It offers more freedom than multicultural minority rights. Because the broadening of active indifference, because opening things up to more of us, does not pick out any particular group or individual, once, an once, an once we've allowed, let's say, turbans to be there or, or, or beards or whatever it might be, then everybody can take, everyone can take advantage of that opening up. We have managed to accommodate those who would have been accommodated under multicultural minority rights, um, but it's also offered more freedom to all of us. We can all now participate in an institution with less restrictions. So to go back to the voting example, when postal and pre-poll voting is introduced, everyone, and not just Orthodox Jews, can now exercise their civic duty in a wider range of ways. We are now free to vote before the Saturday, allowing all of us to fit this civic duty into our lives. Perhaps we usually work on Saturday, are planning on being away, have children's sporting commitments, or just feel like a lazy day. These reasons no longer need to be examined for authenticity, and individuals are free to use whichever voting method suits their circumstance. Active indifference has enabled more freedom then for both Orthodox Jews and for all of us in our own particular ways of life. Active indifference leaves more options open for all of us, even if they're not options we might consider valuable right now. It not only avoids the pitfalls of recognising minorities that comes with minority rights, but provides advantages. 
it allows all of us, not only the immediate targets of this form of neutrality, to be freer than before. Well, thank you, Peter, for such a fascinating discussion. And we're looking forward to reading more about all these debates in your forthcoming book, Debating Multiculturalism. Thanks to our audience for joining us today. This was the Thant UNSW Navigating Uncertainty podcast. Please join us again when we explore the topic of Australia's earliest great war novels and the uncertainties of wartime in our next podcast here at UNSW Canberra. Thank you.